0: Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 22 and reading from verse 15. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap Him in what He said. And they sent their disciples to Him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher... We know that you're truthful and you teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. You know, sometimes we can, we can read these sort of things, and we've heard them before, and so they, they have less of an impact. But if you think what an amazing response this was from Jesus. So, it says in verse 15 that the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap Him in what He said. So, this was a total setup. They wanted to trap Him. Because they knew that if He said, oh, don't pay the poll tax, then He could get the Romans coming right after Him. Here's someone teaching people not to pay taxes. And then if He said, go ahead and pay it, then he would look like he's not a loyal Jew. And so they, so, you know, they would plot and they would scheme. Can you imagine? Imagine a group of very smart people. Imagine a group of professors gathering together and plotting and scheming how to trap you with some statement that you're going to make. And to trap you not just to say, ah, ha, ha, we got you, but to trap you to the point of being put to death. I mean, you'd get kind of concerned. You know, what are they going to ask me? How am I going to respond to this? This is a big deal. And so they, it says, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. The Herodians were Jews who supported very much Herod the king. So Herod had become a Jew of sorts. That He said he had converted and, and he had worked to, to build this temple. And, uh, uh, and so there, that there were people that, that followed the government, the Roman government, yet they were Jews. And so he got, the Pharisees got these people on board with them. And they generally weren't good friends, but they knew this would be a better plot. Because they knew the Herodians had a direct access to the king. And so that, that they could, they could, uh, really get Jesus in this. So they partnered together with some really devious folks to try to trap Jesus. And so what do they do? They come to him and they start flattering him. So they want to set this up through, through flattery. They say, teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth and that you defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Now, come on. You know, this is this is the Pharisees that are trying to kill the guy. And they're coming with these flattering words. They're sending their disciples. So, so it's, it's the Pharisees' disciples. So, you know, they try to mask the thing. You know, so nobody's coming in a big turban and a, you know, long gowns and, and trinkets. They're not the Pharisees themselves. They're sending people in their stead. And they said, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes? Now, Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus perceives immediately that this is a total setup. And Jesus was used to this type of thing. In fact, if you're going to preach the Gospel, people will say things to try to trap you. And generally, the arguments never change. I really believe I've heard them all. You know, people will come and they'll they'll say something to me, like, oh, you know, this is really going to get you. And, you know, I've heard it all before. I really have. I mean, I had this... This 18-year-old freshman come to me and, have you ever taken Archaeology 101? You know, I, I, some you know, introductory archaeology course. And it, it's, it's, what are you trying to say? What is your point here? Well, different people of different cultures. Give me a break. I've been to all of these cultures. I've seen all of this. I've seen it all. And, I, and, and so, you know, but the arguments never change. Imagine what Jesus had seen. He's seen it all. And he says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Now, we know that Jesus ne- never said anything that would be offensive, right? I mean, Jesus looks at them and says, why are you trying to test me like this, you hypocrites? Why couldn't he have just left off the you hypocrites part? Why couldn't he have done that? Because Jesus shouldn't offend anybody, because we know raising an offense is the biggest sin that you could possibly ever be, right? You know, that is the biggest sin. And, and, in fact, people of the world will tell you that. The worst thing that you can do is offend somebody. And I say, you've just offended me. Because the Scriptures teach me that, I'm, that it's okay to say things to offend people, and you just told me something that, 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 that don't match up with what my religion, my faith teaches me. And I find that very offensive. And so, you see, this is... This is just another thing that comes at us, and we get this feeling like we should never say anything. Jesus spoke very clearly, time after time, and he called people exactly what he thought of them. And, and actually, this makes me feel really good, because I don't generally, I have done this, I've called people hypocrites, but I don't generally do this type of thing. And so what I say to them is generally much milder than what Jesus would have said. And so reading the Scriptures makes me feel a little bit better. That compared to Jesus, I'm a real chicken. Compared to Jesus, I never say exactly like what He said. But then He says, show me a coin used for the poll tax. And they brought Him a coin. And He says, whose inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And He said, okay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I mean, this is so profound. It was so profound, it says, and hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. They didn't know what to do, what to say. I mean, what an answer. It is okay to pay taxes. You will find a group of Christians that support not paying taxes. And, you know, they say the taxes are too high. I'm telling you, no matter what level the taxes were, they wouldn't want to pay it. It is not because they they are so holy or something. It is clearly because they just don't want to obey the law. You know, in most countries, very few people pay income tax in, in most other countries. Even in Europe, only people who work for big companies, say in Italy, pay taxes. Typical physician, You go to a physician, it'll be 100 euros, say. If you want a receipt, it's 250 euros to see the physician because they don't want to pay tax. And the system knows that. They're supposed to pay tax, but they don't. And so you get a plumber in your home. It's 100 euros to get a plumber to fix something. If you want a receipt, it's 200 euros. is just in Italy. I mean, this is explained to me. In most countries, they don't pay tax. You go to Pakistan, you're supposed to pay income tax. Nobody does. So even if the taxes were 3%, people would resist the paying of taxes. Turn to to Romans, Romans chapter 13. And and this is is the teaching that we have on this sort of thing. Romans chapter 13, reading from verse 1. And so it gets right back to the teachings that we as Christians are supposed to obey in observance to our government. You say, the Scripture teaches us this? Absolutely. The Scripture teaches us all sorts of things that we need to know in dealing with people, with governments. And and so here we go. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those who exist that exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor. Okay, so you say, well... That's provided this is a nice, friendly Jewish government that's following God's will. No, he's writing this to the to the believers in Rome. So this is all under Roman authority. Was there any corruption in Rome? Of course there was. There's corruption in every government. But Paul is saying pay your taxes. Pay the tax. If you would learn to pay income tax properly, God would bless you all the more. People who try to cheat on their income tax, I think, cheat themselves. He says that we are to pay taxes, we are to give fear to governments. You say It says that those which exist are established by God in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Romans. All governments, all these wicked governments are established by God. God is allowing them to exist. And God says you are to honor them. And you are to respect them. He says, pay tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor for honor. And he says, not just because of the wrath that's going to be dealt out to you for not obeying. He says, for example, in verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So even if you're not going to get caught. Even if the penalty is not hanging. He says you obey for conscience sake. Let me bring this and distill this down to our level. If you have software on your computer that you have not paid for, that you're not supposed to have, you are violating the law. If you have music on your computer that you did not pay for, that does not belong to you, or on your iPod, you are disobeying the law. You say, oh, come on, this is getting a bit much. This is exactly what should happen. If you feel fire, maybe you're doing something wrong. And fear the day that I stop preaching to you the truth. When I started as an assistant professor, I had a computer, a little computer, and I bought this software for it. And, then, and, and it had one megabyte of RAM. It was a great computer, and I ran Microsoft, Microsoft Word. On this thing, could you imagine opening Microsoft Word and typing documents with one megabyte of RAM? I mean, but it worked. Then I got a second computer the next year, and I thought, you know, this thing is just really. I mean, had like 30 megabytes of RAM. It was a great computer. I bought a whole other set of software for that computer. My colleagues thought you're crazy. What are you doing? well I got a second computer just put this software on there so I called up the software companies and said, can I put this on a second computer guess what Microsoft said no way you can't do that my colleagues thought I was crazy so here's this other young colleague right across the hall he's getting all these computers and just stringing out one, one version of software that he's bought and he's put in, on, on all these computers and I'm buying a separate set for each computer as we expand our group God blessed my research group with so much money. I had program managers calling me and saying, do you need more money in your grant? I have some excess in my account. I'm like, ah, yeah. And they would send me money. This is unheard of. And this colleague across the hall who's just stringing out his software across all these computers is getting nothing. Always in need. I am telling you by obeying the law, you are blessed. Plus, my conscience is clear. So that when I hear messages like this, it doesn't bother me. And there's so much illegal stuff that sometimes I find something in my home that I shouldn't have, and then I get rid of it. But I'm, I'm looking to get rid of stuff that I shouldn't be doing. When I pay my income tax, if there's any question, you know, is this a legal expense or is it not, I ask my accountant. And if she's not sure, I say, just pay it. I, mean, what's the, I just don't want to be caught on the wrong side. Not that I'm going to go to jail for that little thing, but for conscience' sake. This is what he's getting at. As believers, God places within us a conscience with that Holy Spirit that just begins to stir our heart when we hear certain things. And I want to be free. I want to be absolutely free. I want to be able to preach messages on this and stand up here without sounding like a hypocrite. So I'd much rather be free. We are to keep that level of freeness. And this is what he's saying. He says, you fear when you do wrong. And as a believer, if we go against, against this voice of conscience that he's placed within us for doing something wrong, if we, it, this, that, that reminds us of something, if we keep just saying, oh, you know, these are just skeletons in the closet. It's really nothing. Well, you know, those skeletons keep kicking the door open. And so you've got to somehow say, you know, Let me deal with that problem. Let me deal with it. And then what happens? Your life becomes free. Becomes absolutely free. And then you get much more. In return, you get much more for obeying Him. And then you're free to speak on these topics too. And then He says you give, <clears throat> you give honor to whom honor is due. You know, just the whole thing of, of understanding honor. When, when you have a, a boss... For example, you speak well of your boss, even if, you know, he's a crumb, you don't speak poorly of him or of her. You know, and, and people will stand around, you know, the water cooler and speak about their boss. And like, just I want to get away from you guys, because it says give honor to whom honor is due. And your boss may not be the greatest person in the world, but you just don't have to go around blabbing it. You give honor to whom honor is due. And we lose a lot of that sense. I'll give you. I'll give you a, a, another thing where, where students lose it a lot. Is, is salutations in email messages? You know, so when I respond to somebody, it's dear, dear John. da 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 da. Oh, that's so archaic. Blah blah blah. But you know, so many times people come back to me and they say, you know, just the way you address your email messages as dear so and so. That really keys in with people. You know, it's it, it's, it's uh, most email messages have no salutation. But when you learn that there are certain people that you need to honor, and you say, "Dear Doctor So and So" or "Dear So and So," it means something. It does something. Learning to give honor to whom honor is due, rather than you know, "Doctor Tour," da 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 da. That's not a salutation. You learn how to do this, and it will bless you. It will bless you in your life. You will move up in your career just with these little sort of things. Learning how to give honor to whom honor is due. And not that I flip out when the person didn't write dear. No, I understand the culture. But I'm saying that if we go against the culture and do what the Word of God prescribes, things go much better for us. Things view, people view us as a lot more respectful. They want to promote us. They want to hire us when they see these sort of things. So, so um, for example, my mentor, so, so I, I got my PhD with a certain individual and then I did a postdoctoral work with a certain individual. I would never call them by their first name. Even if they say, call me by my first name. I wouldn't do it anymore. I just wouldn't do it because they were always my men. I still say, Professor Nagishi, Professor Trost. I still do this. And in all my, my emails, dear Professor Trost, this is what I do. And he signs it, Barry. And I say, dear Professor Trost. Why? Because I want to give honor to whom honor is due. If they are coming through Houston, I will host them. I will be here for them. You know, they gave of themselves for me. And I am going to continue to honor them the rest of my life. Neither of them is a believer, but I'm going to extend to them honor. Honor to whom honor is due. Learning how to do that, your life is greatly blessed. It is a good thing to obey the law. And you will find a group of Christians, if you haven't met them yet, you will, and they're usually disgruntled men. And they're in an anti-tax campaign. Now, I don't know... At what point? You know, if you, if you live in parts of, uh, of Europe and you work for a company, I mean, it's very high taxes. I mean, this is just a part of life. You pay tax to whom taxes do. Don't worry about it. God will bless you. God will bless you if you keep conniving. And I've known lots of Christian connivers in my life. I really have. I've seen them all. And you want to know something? They never, in the end, prosper. In the end, they die broke. If you're always conniving and trying to get past this and you know not pay on that and find a way to get past this and weasel past that and you know not paying this custom, that custom, you die broke. And if you don't worry about it, you just pay it and say, God, you know, I'm just gonna follow the law to the letter. You just God gives you plenty. God just gives you plenty. Don't be one of those connivers who always thinks you're gonna get around something. Because even if you get around it and the wrath doesn't hit you, it's the conscience. And what motivates a man is the key here. What is motivating us? What is our motive here? Is our motive to not pay something and to to move around it? Well, if I don't pay, I have more to give. Come on, you cheapskate. That's for yourself. No intention of giving that. God will bless you if you learn how to obey the law. As you learn to obey, you will be blessed. Are there occasions where we are clearly in Scripture commanded to disobey the law? And the answer is yes. I will give you the the times when there is civil disobedience. And turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 has a prime example of this. So that's the second book of the Bible. Right after Genesis you'll find Exodus. In Exodus chapter 1. Verse 15, now the king of Egypt, so remember the Jews are living in Egypt, so if there's a king of Egypt, they're under his his law. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, verse 15, one of whose name was Shiphron, and the other was named Puha. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, And see upon the birth stool, if it is, and see them upon their birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is his daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and, and, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. This was a direct act of disobedience by the midwives to the governing authority. When it comes to human life, when it comes to human life, you preserve it. You do not take human life. That is a direct example in the Scriptures that we see that if we disobey authorities, we will be blessed when it comes to the preservation of human life. That is an example. Here is another example. Turn to Acts chapter 4. So the first example is when human life is at stake. And the government in some way has said, go ahead and take that life. We are not to take it. Acts chapter 4. Reading from verse 18. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, What is right in the sight of God? Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they instructed, so the the Jewish leaders instructed Peter and John to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. They had a direct command by the governing authorities who they were to be under. And Peter and John said, we can't stop speaking about Jesus. You be the judge. So when it comes... The preservation of human life, when it comes to the speaking in the name of Jesus, we have direct examples in the scriptures where they were greatly blessed in not obeying the governing authorities. So this is the same book, the same book that tells us to obey governing authorities, to pay our taxes, to honor governing authorities, gives us direct examples when we are not to obey them. When it comes to human life, when it comes to preaching the gospel, The other example is, is, uh, turn to John. John chapter 9, verse 22. John chapter 9, verse 22. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ... He was to be put out of the synagogue. So the Jews had said, if anyone becomes a believer in this Jesus Christ, confesses him to indeed be the Messiah, he's to be put out of the synagogue. In other words, it's such an act of disobedience, you will have no relations with us as a Jewish community. And this is very different than being asked to leave a church, where you just go down the road and you go to another church and there's no allegiance anywhere. You just find another church. This was total ostracism from the community in which you live. You're out. You can no longer be of the community. And so this was the command. And so then look in the same chapter, verse 34. They answered him, You were born entirely in sin, and you are teaching us, so they put him out. So in other words, this man spoke highly of Jesus, and they indeed threw him out of the synagogue. Now look and turn over the page to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 read verse 42 John 12:42 John 12:42 says nevertheless many even of the rulers believed in him but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue you see that many rulers believed in Jesus Christ many of the rulers but they were not confessing him For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because they knew what the command of the Pharisees was. You confess Jesus Christ, you're out. But we understand that. I mean, why confess Jesus is we're going to be thrown out of our community. That's understandable. I mean, God must understand, does he? Well, read verse 43. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's pretty tough. You want to save your hide by not confessing Jesus? You know what the Bible says of you or of me when we do that? Because you love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. There seems to be very little patience, very little patience for not confessing the name of Jesus Christ. For not testifying of His name. For not bearing His name. I mean, what happens to us if we don't testify of Jesus? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. These people would get thrown out of the synagogue, would have no community, no relation. Their families would disown them. Family, everything, gone. And the Bible still says, because you love the approval of men rather than the approval of God, if you don't speak up. Clear opportunity here to either walk with God or not walk with God. Human life... When it comes to preaching the gospel, we still preach. When it comes to getting saved, bearing His name, we still take on His name. Even if the governing authority says, don't testify of His name, don't be associated with Him, don't get saved. The Bible says, you don't want to get saved and you know it's true? It's because you love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. There is a clear chance that something may happen. You may live in some area that says you, you know, people shouldn't get saved. You must have people get saved. These are the, these, it has nothing to do with disobeying taxes. That you pay. You obey the speed limits. You, you know, deal with software properly. You deal with these things rightly. But when it comes to the preservation of human life, to preaching the gospel, when it comes to getting saved, even when the governing authorities say, don't do it, you still do it. Look in, in uh, Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11. You know, they... they You see this this beautiful testimony of, of, of faith here in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about Moses. And it says Moses had every opportunity to live. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. Many people thought he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. They thought Moses was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But Moses said, no, I'm a Jew. And he identified with the slaves. Can you imagine... Pharaoh's daughter, who viewed Moses like a son, she was probably told, Moses, just calm down. Don't tell anybody you're a Jew and you can live here quite comfortably. And you can have all the treasures of Egypt. In fact, you might get the throne if you keep your mouth shut about this thing. And, and look in, 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 uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of Egypt which were available to him. The reproach of Christ? Christ hadn't even been born yet. No, he well understood. What it meant to walk with God. This is what it means by the reproach of Christ. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He could have enjoyed all the passing pleasures of sin. All the passing pleasures that come to the house of Pharaoh. All the treasures, all the women, all the things that men's hearts seek, he could have had. But he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to have the passing pleasures of sin. This is what it meant to him. There was a chance, there was opportunity, there was occasions where civil disobedience had to be manifest, and these are the occasions. Turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel. So shortly before the New Testament, you have the minor prophets there, and the first of the minor prophets there, you have this book of Daniel. After, after uh, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you get Daniel. In Daniel chapter six, in Daniel chapter six, um, in verse one, it seemed good to Darius to appoint a hundred and twenty satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these. Satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. So let's paint the picture now. Daniel is taken as a prisoner into Babylon. He serves under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar saw that this was a young man who had all this talent and he get, ends up getting promoted. After Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson actually had run the kingdom into the ground. The kingdom of Babylon gets overtaken by the Persians. And so now... Daniel has served under Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar then ends up in Persia serving under Darius and Cyrus. So Daniel served under at least five kings and he... So here is this Jew who was, who was a slave in Babylon, who gets raised up, now becomes a slave in, in, in Persia. They see his talent. He's raised up to being one of the three people under King Darius. Now, King Darius was a pretty pliable guy. He wasn't a very strong king. And so these 120 people don't like being under the command of some Jewish guy that they think ought to be a slave anyway. And so it says in verse 3, Then this Daniel began to distinguish himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. And the commissioners and the satraps became began trying to find grounds of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. Could someone examine your life and to say, there is no corruption in this person. They're not disobeying any of the rules. I tell my students when I write papers, look, if I'm writing a paper and I write a statement in that paper and you see it, and and it and it's not what you did or it's not the result that you got let me know it's i wrote that out of ignorance let me know you're the guys that generated the data let me know we can't publish anything that's false here we can't make it sound differently than it really is let me know because i want complete honesty going out in the dealings of our money in the books i want absolute honesty. You know, I get reimbursements. The checks are written. Often people send me the checks, but it's the reimbursement for my travel. I could easily pocket that check. You know, the university doesn't know that I was getting reimbursed for this professional travel. For all I know, it's charged to my own travel account. But I write the check back to the university or I sign it back to the university or I cash it, take the portion that's mine and make sure that every financial detail is there, is recorded. You know, one time a, a, a group asked me to go on a proposal with them, and I knew that these were sleazy guys, and I said, I really don't want to go on the proposal with you, and they said, no, 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 I said, I don't want to be on the proposal with you, I'll write you a letter to say that I'll analyze some of your compounds, but I don't want any of this money from the proposal. Well, they figured that with my name on the proposal, it would make the proposal get funded much more easily, and that can happen, because they knew me better than they knew these people on the proposal. So, I wrote them the letter that I would do some analyses for them. But I didn't want any money from their grant. Well, they wrote this proposal and submitted it with my name on it. Well, how can they do that? I didn't sign the proposal. And so then I get a call from the university six months later from the the, the research office. And they said, the head of research, the the vice provost for research said, "Um, your name is on a proposal that's been submitted and it has falsified data in it. I said, which proposal? And she told me, I said, oh, I said, I never signed that proposal. She said, your signature's on it. I said, I never signed it. So these two investigators come to my office from the National Science Foundation. So these are the police that, you know, try to scope this thing out. And they said, did you sign this? I said, no, I didn't sign this. And they showed me the piece of paper, you know. I said, that is my signature, but I never signed that. And they said, okay, uh, uh, how do you think your signature got there then? I said, well, I sent them a letter. And that letter had my signature on it that I would do some of their analyses. Did you check to see if that signature from the letter is exactly the same as this? They said, we did check. It is. We just wanted to see what you had to say about it. They had lifted my signature off this thing, you know, pasted it on there and then photocopied it and they had it. And so, you know, I came out looking so squeaky clean because I had suspected that these guys were kind of sleazy and I had written them a letter and sent it. Um, uh, um, by Federal Express so I'd have the signature saying that I don't want to be on the proposal and I take these matters very seriously. If you submitted a proposal with my name on it, it must be extracted. And this was six months before any of this happened. It made me come out looking really good. After that, in the university, the university system said, Jim Tour will never do anything wrong, which I'm not sure is the case, but that was the impression. Something came up here at the university, again, just about a year ago. And, again, the accountants came right to my aid and said, tour would do nothing wrong. I try really hard to make it so that nothing even appears evil. The scriptures say, keep away from even the appearance of evil, it says in the New Testament. So, if something even appears evil, stay away from it. Just stay away from it. You know, if, you, you know this friend of mine had this trash can in his house that was from a hotel, and you know, it, it, so it had the, you, you know, like Holiday Inn on it. And he said, I feel funny with this because the Holiday Inn was getting rid of their trash cans. But every time people come in, they think I stole this from the Holiday Inn. I said, if I were you, I would get rid of it just to get rid of the appearance of evil. It's like like the old lady who was complaining how, how terrible the world had gotten and, and how corrupt it had been. And she said, I can't believe it. Somebody broke in my house and stole all my Holiday Inn towels. So, you know... The, the, there's an appearance of evil here that we can have. And just stay away from it, because we as believers have to maintain a cleaner life, so they could find nothing. So, in respect to his faith, they tried to get him. So that, in verse 6, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King, David, king Darius lived forever, and they convinced him to make it so that only people could pray to King Darius. And so, Daniel just continued praying to his own God in verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in the roof chamber, he had a window toward Jerusalem. And he had a window open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day and praying and giving thanks before God. So, he disobeyed the law of the land. He ends up getting thrown in the lion's den, and God delivers him. And even if God didn't deliver him, He disobeyed the law of the land to pray. Here's the instances you can disobey the law of the land to save human life when it comes to preaching the gospel, when it comes to getting saved, and when it comes to prayer and worship. So the things surrounding us in our worship and prayer and preaching life and the things surrounding us with respect to human life, there is clear precedent in Scripture you can have civil disobedience then and only then. I am a big patriot and a big supporter of our country. And those are the only occasions. And thank God, we are not forced in this country at this time to disobey any of these commandments. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your grace and Your mercies and Your Word that instruct us to every detail. And Father, I pray for these young people that their lives would remain clean, not just because of wrath but because of conscience sake, for conscience sake. And Father, that You would cause them to walk rightly and even refrain from the the appearance of the evil. And Father, I pray for Your grace to be there, that they would refrain from the appearance of evil. And Father, that they may be free with a good conscience. Lord, change their lives and let them walk uprightly. And I give this to You in the name of Jesus. Amen.